Are you enjoying worship today? Do you believe it is glorifying and honoring to, to the Lord Jesus? I would agree. I would agree. If you have your Bible, open to Luke chapter 6. That's where we are, Mark, Luke chapter 6, verses 8 through 11, just because I know you're wondering. Um, every Sunday, it's just the very next few verses, so no mystery where we're going from Sunday to Sunday. Amen? No excuse not to know where we are. Amen? Boy, y'all are getting excited this morning, I can tell. Hopefully, what you're beginning to learn is, is there is a richness to expositional preaching that you do not get from topical preaching. Uh, you can go cherry pick one scripture from the Bible and pretty much make it say anything you want to say. But when you go expositionally through the text, you're kind of forced to maintain that context and you get to what the real meaning of the text is. And that's one of the reasons why we do it this way is because I don't want to know what Shelby thinks the text says. I want to know what who thinks. I want to know what God says the text says. That's why we do it the way we do it. So join me, Luke chapter 6, verses, it's actually 6 through 11, 6, 8 through 11, somewhere in there. Today, we see another healing uh, on the Sabbath. Now, one of the things I want you to get around your mind, and the reason why I want you to get around your mind is that I'm having to get around my mind, so our minds need to be together, amen? <laughs> uh, this is just strange uh, how the hatred of the religious begins to swell against our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Uh, as we know, uh, Jesus lived a perfect and sinful life, did he not? Mark just said that. Uh, but yet, people hated him for it. Uh, he did good all the days of his life. Uh, he healed, he loved people. Uh, he hung out with the misfit and the outcast, and uh, he was hated for it. And just remember, uh, we are supposed to be doing the exact same thing, amen? We are supposed to be living a life just like Jesus and unfortunately be hated for it. So just remember that. Last Sunday, we followed Jesus into a grain field with his disciples as they were hungry and did something that to me and to you probably seemed very trivial, uh, very trivial. They plucked out grain with their hands and they, I mean, literally went to the grain head and just plucked some grain out with their hands and then took it in their hands and kind of threshed it and then, and then ate it. And the religious leaders uh, were very unhappy with that because they accused them, their disciples, of working on the Sabbath. So now we see the kind of, the, I like to call it the fever pitch, so to speak, of these religious elite leaders in, in basically stalking Jesus. You'll hear me say that a lot uh, because I, I believe that is exactly what they are doing. Uh, I believe their hatred toward him is, is creating an unhealthy obsession and they believe that they need to, to stop him at all costs because he threatens their what? Power. Because Christ comes in authority. He's preaching in authority. He's preaching with divine authority and divine power. And the Pharisees have had control for centuries, and they have no power. It's all religion and politics and backdoor dealings and you know, my daddy did this and my daddy did that, so I get to do that. And Jesus comes and just wrecks all that. And that's why they hate him so much. So in this case, technically, they were working on the Sabbath and therefore violating Sabbath laws. And this was Jesus Christ in their mind, right? Then he's claiming to be the Messiah. So how could Jesus set an example of breaking Sabbath laws? So at that point, Jesus goes back in the Old Testament from Samuel, and he says these words, have you not read what David did when he was hungry, he and those who were with him, how he entered the house of God? 
and took and ate the bread of presence, which is not lawful for any but the priest to eat, and also gave it to those with him. And he said, Jesus, the Son of Man, is the Lord of the Sabbath. So what he's basically telling them, if you miss that, is that he is telling them that the urgency of human need is more important than the oral traditions of the Sabbath laws. That's what he's saying. Human need always takes precedent over laws, especially on the Sabbath. The Sabbath was made for who? Man, not man for the Sabbath. Now, just briefly, the Sabbath, that's a controversial word in circles of faith. There's been arguing about Sabbath, and there's different denominations that are, you know, based upon different observances of Sabbath days and whatnot. I try to give you just a very simple understanding of that, but this was a covenant instituted by God at creation. It became a festival that the Jews were to uh, hold once a week, the Sabbath festival, Uh, It is foundational to our existence as his creation, and the basis of Sabbath is one key word that I absolutely love. Thank you, yes, say it together. Louder, rest, yes. Who here loves to rest? Let's try that again. Who here loves to rest? Okay, good, my goodness. Are y'all listening? I mean, rest, you know? So anyway, Genesis 2, 1 through 3, we know that on the seventh day, God rested, he made that holy because on it God rested from all his work and then we know that that was codified. That was codified in the law of Israel. In Exodus chapter 20, when Exodus, when, excuse me, when the Jews are beginning, when Israel is beginning to be a nation and God wanted them to be a holy priesthood, a nation of priests, he gave them a code, a, a law code that was reflective of his own holiness. And he said, you are to live as my people that are called by my name. And one of those specific things that was, that was engineered by God into the DNA of their, of their law and the holiness of God was that he had set aside that day for rest, for us to be able to rest. Praise Jesus. So the Sabbath for the Jewish people was on Saturday, the last day of the week. For Christians, that's changed due to the Lord Jesus' resurrection. Y'all understand that, right? Took me a while, I was confused about it too for a season or two, but he was raised from the dead on Sunday morning. So our week starts with Sunday, ends with Saturday. Sabbath for the Jews began Friday at sunset and ended at sunset on Saturday. So Sabbath was a defining characteristic of Judaism and that's why this is such a huge deal. And I believe that the Jews had good intention behind the oral laws that they had put on top of the Sabbath. We know for a fact there is no arguing the case in the, in, the, in, the, in the prophets. It is recorded multiple times that one of the reasons why the Jews were attacked and destroyed by Babylon and sent into exile was profaning the what? Sabbath. Meaning they did not keep their Sabbaths. And so God punished them by sending them into exile for 70 years, destroying the northern kingdom and then the southern kingdom. So these leaders thought they were doing a good thing by trying to set all these other laws on top of that to ensure that they never did what on the Sabbath? Right. So they had this this extremely detailed legal code, but it became ridiculous. It just became burdensome. I mean, I, I couldn't imagine having to, uh, to memorize and know all the additional laws to be certain that you didn't violate any of them because you got these Pharisees and scribes out here ready to take a ruler and pop you on the wrist, right? So Jesus comes and he just shatters 
all this, and we can say amen to that. So verse 6, Luke chapter 6, verses 6 through 11, the Sabbath crisis continues. On another Sabbath, he entered the synagogue and was teaching. And a man was there whose right hand was withered, and the scribes and Pharisees watched him to see whether he would heal on the Sabbath so they might find a reason to accuse him. <laughs> Man, that's got to be an empty life, amen? Following somebody around, waiting for him to do something wrong so you can accuse him or something? Good grief. But he knew their thoughts, and he said to the man with the withered hand, come and stand here, and he rose and stood there, and Jesus said to them, I ask you, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or destroy it? And after looking around at them all, he said to them, stretch out your hand, and he did so. And his hand was restored. But they were filled with what? Fury. I mean, not just anger. Wrath. Fury. I mean, hate. Wanting to kill Jesus and discuss with one another what they might do to Jesus. Now, there's two parallel passages you need to make note of in your Bible. I'll refer to them as we go through. Matthew 12, 9 through 14 there's one specific addition in verse 11 that you need to be aware of. And in Matthew chapter, I mean, excuse me, Mark chapter three, verses one through six, there is an addition he gives, a perspective he gives in verse five that we, will, that we will reference later in the message. So those two passages, Matthew 12, nine through 14, Mark chapter three, verses one through six. If you have a study Bible, uh, it, it'll be in your margins. <clears throat> All good study Bibles do that, and they, they show you the differences in the text and the testimony. So here's the setting of this miracle. Now, the last Sabbath, this issue, this confrontation happened where? I, I prepped you with that. I gave you all that at the very beginning. Where were they? Grain field, okay? They're in a grain field. So the Pharisees were following them around in the, to the grain field. Now, this one's a little different. Jesus ups, the, ups it a little bit here. Where does he go this time? To the synagogue. So he goes to church. And we know most likely we're still in what area? Capernaum. Still around Capernaum. So Christ enters the synagogue at Capernaum and sees another opportunity to heal a man who has a withered hand. Now, the Bible says as Christ is teaching, he sees a man who Luke the physician describes as a man whose right hand was withered. Now, when you study the Bible, please do this. Please, please go out online or talk to us in the office and let us give you some, some language resources so you can go out to the original language and look at all the different nuances of the interpretation. And if, and if you go to passages in different translations sometimes, you'll know if they had a difficult time translating a specific word because the translations will translate it somewhat differently, right? You've seen that. So in this case, this word, xeros, X-E-R-O-S, means, his withered hand means dry. It can take the nuance of being dried out. Withered is what the, the committee with the ESV decided on. Another, uh, another uh, interpretation is paralyzed. Another interpretation is shrunken. Now, in contemporary society, I, there's another word that I've heard used probably more than any of those to describe someone's, the, the lack of use of someone's hand beginning to wither it. What word do you think that is? Atrophy. You heard that word? Atrophy. So a limb will atrophy if the muscles are no longer able to work, if there's no muscle movement in the limb that causes it to shrink and become less and less usable. So as we read the story, 
I know that my first question was this. What had caused this man to lose the use of his hand? And it's interesting because when you talk to people about that, what you'll hear from them say is, what, what difference does it make? The man had a withered hand. And to a certain degree, this is true. But to understand the magnitude of the miracle, we must put ourselves where? In that man's body and have a withered hand ourselves, Because I can assure you that he knew exactly, exactly why his hand was withered. And we do have extra biblical sources that tell us that the man had been a stonemason. We cannot teach that that is truth because it's extra biblical, but it is interesting, it is an interesting possibility. But he is stonemason. So this condition had most definitely rendered him what? Unable to work, yeah, unable to work. A devastating sentence for a man in the ancient Near East, and then obviously today, obviously today, especially if he had a family. So while what caused his hand to be withered may not matter to us, it was deeply important to who? Him. And I'm sure it was a matter of sadness and brokenness as the days passed by and he watched his hand do what? Yeah, just shrink away to nothing, right? Just imagine that. Just take your hands out and look at them and just imagine that your right hand slowly begins to just cripple itself and not able to even open it up and grab things, squeeze things, pick up children, work, pick up the TV remote control, pick up a shovel, <laughs> watch Netflix. Just imagine the horror of that, right? So he knew why. Now, I can speak from personal experience on this particular disability. Not long after Angie and I got married, my father had a horrible stroke when he was in his late 50s that rendered his right hand nearly 80% disabled. At that time, my dad was part owner of his own optical shop in our hometown, and as an optician, he filled eyeglass prescriptions and did fitting adjustments for patients' eyeglasses. So you can imagine the eventual result that the stroke had on his business. As his hand withered from the stroke, he was unable to cut lenses. He became unable to adjust glasses. And consequently, his will was slowly broken as a man. As he got weaker, he became bitter to the point that his business partner became exasperated and suddenly abandoned him without warning, which provoked a brief legal battle, but was eventually settled peacefully. Then why do you tell us all that, preacher? Why are you telling us your dirt and all your stories? Because it's the truth. And because behind every disability, there is a hurt struggling human being that may even believe they have been cursed or abandoned by who? Sometimes those that are disabled brings the disability on themselves. Sometimes they don't. When we read there was a man with a withered hand, we must realize that there is a body attached to that hand that has a heart and a mind, and it's staggering to imagine the amount of grief and pain that can happen when someone becomes disabled. For my father, I saw it with my own eyes, it was life-altering 
life-altering. At that time, he lived alone. He had difficulty with daily living activities. He had difficult doing laundry. He had difficult preparing his own meals, so he lost weight, began to experience other health problems, and he was a very difficult man to help. Can I get a witness? You know the type. Very difficult man to help. So his withered hand led to dozens of other frustrations in life that led to all sorts of grief and consequences. And he also had chronic back pain problems that I used to doubt until about five years ago. (laughs) And you know what happened five years ago. I woke up, and I've told you all this story, but I'm going to tell it to you again because I want your pity and sympathy, okay? (laughs) I woke up. Just a normal Friday night. It was the end of vacation Bible school. Woke up Saturday morning and I had a, a horrendous crick in my neck. Now, I've had cricks in my necks before, but this one was just horrendous. And I, no matter what I did, no matter what I did, it wouldn't go away. I tried to endure it, tried to endure it, took, took all kind of pain medicine, wouldn't go away. Finally broke down and went to the doctor and, and they told me I had a herniated disc and this is why I could either, you know, it'll, it'll heal by itself in six to eight weeks or I can do X, Y, Z for treatment. Well, you know what I did, right? Tough guy, right? I'm going I'm to bear it out for six to eight weeks. After about four or five more uh, days of sleepless nights due to pain, because that's when the pain came the most. When I was up during the day doing stuff, sitting upright and doing stuff, I was fine. It was when I laid down at night was when the pain came and it was unbearable. So I finally went and got an injection and, and uh, you know, it, it, it helps. It temporarily fixed the problem. But my understanding of my dad's health problems changed because I was afflicted with something very similar to he had. And when we read things like this in the text about a man with a withered hand, we need to stop. And we need to dive into this man's life and try to understand what he's dealing with. Because you know who did understand exactly what he was dealing with? Jesus. He understands what we're all dealing with. If you can believe that, he does. So that helps set the context. Christ enters the synagogue, and while he is teaching, he sees a man in the assembly with a withered hand. As he scans the assembly, he also sees the scribes and the Pharisees watching him to see whether he would heal on the Sabbath so that they might find a reason to accuse him. So when Jesus sees this man, he doesn't just see a withered hand. He sees a withered heart as well. He sees a withered heart as well. Next couple verses. But he knew their thoughts. (laughs) He knew their thoughts. And he said to the man with the withered hand, come and stand here. And he rose and stood there. And Jesus said to him, I ask you, talking to the Pharisees and the scribes, I ask you, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or destroy it. Let's back up and let's dive into this, these first few words that I absolutely love, almost as much as rest, uh, but, but not quite as much as rest because I love the fact that, uh, that, that Jesus can read minds, amen? Now, I would be mortified if Angie could read my mind, amen? Mortified. But, but I, I've never really worried a whole lot about Jesus knowing what's on the inside because I, I, know, I know he knows anyway. And he, he knows I'm a sinner. That's why he had to save me. 
okay, but, but Angie knowing, oh my goodness gracious, I just don't, can't even think about that. So I know that Jesus knows every thought I have, but it, but it doesn't bother me that much. I've always thought that was strange. Jesus can hear our thoughts. He can read our minds because he is God. He doesn't read our minds, and here's the catch, he doesn't read our minds with the motivation that we would have, right? Okay? He reads mine so that he can convict you with the healing truth of the gospel. We watch body language and face movement and eyebrow twitches because we want to believe that we have some form of sixth sense and can figure you out so we can plot against you to win the argument. But that's not why Jesus reads our minds. He reads minds to save us. To let him know, to let us know that he is who? God. Because I haven't met too many people that can read minds. He's the only one I've ever known that really could. Interesting, Jeremy, that you use Hebrews 4.12, because I'm about to use it right now. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit of joints and marrow, and discerning the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. That's Jesus. He knew their thoughts. So let me try to give this to you. Just follow me here. Now, I, I worked real hard on this paragraph. Y'all ready? I worked hard on this paragraph. So while Jesus is teaching in the synagogue, man, let me, let me take a drink of water so I can get it right. Now, All right. So while Jesus is teaching in the synagogue, these other trains of thought are going on in his mind. Okay. He is teaching the gospel. He is scanning the room and identifies the man with the withered hand and senses his deep-seated anguish and pain. He sees the religious leaders and hears and processes their thoughts while he is doing all this other thinking, while the Father leads him to action. He hears the Pharisees, reads their minds, and hears them say quietly in their minds, Today is the Sabbath. He just defended his disciples as they broke tradition recently on a Sabbath by plucking grain and eating. He has supposedly healed a man with leprosy and a, and a crippled and cast out demons from various people. Surely with us sitting right here watching him, he won't come and stand here. Did you follow that? So while they're thinking these things, Jesus reads their mind and points to the man with the withered hand and says what? Get up, come and stand right here in front of the entire assembly. Now, why does he do that? Because he wants to make absolutely certain that nobody does what? Misses what is about to happen. Misses what is about to happen. Come and stand here. The man rose and stood by Jesus in front of the synagogue so everybody could see him and his withered hand. Jesus said to the Pharisees and scribes, I ask you, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or destroy it? I bet you could hear a pin drop in that synagogue. I mean, my friends, I am not, I probably, I, I'm, I know I don't have the theological training of a Pharisee or a scribe from back in this time. And I certainly, I certainly am not Jesus Christ. I mean, I'm just an old Delta boy that's been saved by grace, that answered his call, that preaches his word and ministers to his people as good as I can. And I know the answer to that one. I 
I ask you, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or to destroy it? What is the answer? To do good. To do good, to save life. Of course, Sabbath was the day God gave us as a gift to rest and rejuvenate and to remember him and his goodness going without rest for days and days. Do you know it will actually kill you if you do that? If you go sleep deprived for days on end, eventually you will die. Eventually you will die. Now, did the Pharisees and scribes answer? Look at the text. Silence, right? Silence, no answer, and their silence says it all. They would not admit that they were what? Golly, take some advice this morning, brothers and sisters. Are you awake? Are you listening? Are you with me? Take some advice from your 52-year-old, half-balding, lunatic pastor, okay? When you are wrong, admit it. Just admit it. Don't listen and watch and play along with this cultural, with this spin culture, with this over-legalized attorney soaked through spin cycle that's out there across every discipline out there everywhere. If, if you are wrong about something, admit it. It is one of the most freeing things you will ever do is to admit you are wrong. Teenagers, do you hear me? Amen? When you're wrong, say it with me, admit it. Just admit that you're wrong. They could not. The Pharisees and the scribes could not admit they were wrong. Now, wives, do you hear me? When you're wrong, what do you do? Boy, did you see how weak that was? The wives, they just, they just, they can't even admit it now, you know? They can't even say it now. If you're wrong, admit it. So why did Jesus ask the question like that? That's an interesting question, is it not? The, the Pharisees are stalking Jesus on the Sabbath. He reads their minds and hits them publicly with a staggering and sudden question. I ask you, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm or to save life or destroy it? In Matthew chapter 12, verse 11, there's another sentence that he says right then in front of that whole synagogue. He says, which one of you who has a sheep if it falls into a pit on the Sabbath, what you going to do? Get it out. You won't stop what you're doing and go get it out. Then he says, of how much more value is a man than a sheep? Trapped, busted, wrong, admit it. Jesus here reminds them of his eschatological mission. That, that's, now look, you got to learn that word, okay? I know I just said a mouthful. Did y'all even hear it? Eschatological. That just means end times, okay? You got to understand that. You, you, you will misinterpret everything in the Bible if you don't get that right. Jesus ushered in the last days. It is said repeatedly through the scripture, right? The last days. So the last days go all the way until what time? Jesus comes back, okay? All of us in this room are going to do what if he doesn't come back? Right. But when he comes back, we will be raised from the dead. So, so 
It's one of the most difficult things to get your mind around that's in the Bible. There was a scholar years ago that said, we believe in inaugurated eschatology. (laughs) Whoa, what is that? It means already, but not yet. We're already saved. All of us are saved, aren't we? I mean, if you believe in Jesus Christ, you're saved. But are we in glory yet? Physically in glory? Not yet, but we will be. So we walk around in this fleshly body that Paul calls in Romans chapter seven, what does he call it? A body of death. Not a body of life, he calls it a body of death. Why does he call it a body of death? Because what's it doing day after day? Dying, right. So Jesus is speaking eschatologically here, okay? Eschatologically. For Jesus today, including the Sabbath day, is the day when divine salvation is available to those who need it. It don't matter if it's Sabbath, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, if Jesus is there and you want to be saved, what do you do? Have faith and profess Christ and you're saved. To prepare for the end times. So Jesus' ministry... Get this now, Jesus' ministry restores to the Sabbath command its profound significance. Restoration of human beings in their integrity as a part of God's creation. His hand was dying, and along with his hand, a part of his spirit was dying. His dying hand represented something much deeper and permanent, which was his dying spirit. Where did this process of disease and dying all begin? At creation and the fall, by healing on the Sabbath and claiming lordship over the Sabbath, Christ reminds the Pharisees something they had long forgotten. That God had set a plan in motion to bring the entire creation where? Back to its initial what? Perfection. Healing the man's withering hand was evidence that it was him that would do it. That's why he's Lord over the Sabbath. Because he was there at the dawn of creation. Colossians tells us that he actually was the agent of creation, that God created the world through him, for him, by him, by Christ. That's why he asked the question, (laughs) is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or destroy it? In other words, he's saying, y'all are a bunch of idiots. You're just a bunch of idiots. You're you're so concerned about these empty, meaningless Sabbath laws, you are missing the fact that you have got a man with a real need with a withered hand right here. And I can fix it and heal his hand. And all you want to do is complain and nag and hate me for doing good on the Sabbath. And after looking around at them... So you just get this picture, you know, that he's got him standing there. (laughs) So he's asked this question and he's looking around, right? Jesus is looking around at all of them, you know, just looking at them. Uh, There's another another scripture that says he's, uh, if you look at uh, Mark chapter 3 verse 5, it adds something very significant. And he looked around, around at them with anger, grieved at their hardness of heart. Fixing a man with a crippled hand, fitting to fix a man with a crippled hand, but they're going to get mad about it and want to kill Jesus about it. That, that makes about as much sense as, I, don't, I, I can't come up with anything. But anyway, but you know what I'm saying. And after looking around at them, 
all, he said, stretch out your hand, and he did so, and his hand was restored. But they were filled with fury and disgusted with one another what they might do to Jesus. Now, this is interesting. This is interesting. If you've ever known somebody that has had some form of disability or deformity, uh, do they walk around parading it in front of everybody? What do they do? They hide it. They cover it. They put a bag over it. Uh, Y'all remember the story of the elephant man, John Merrick, back many, many, many years ago. I remember when that movie came out. It was just when they, we, we waited the whole movie for the bag to be taken off his head. And it was like, ah, you know. My dad, when he had his stroke, he carried his hand like this. This arm was fine, but this, this hand he kept tucked underneath and tried not to let anybody see it and protected it. But the Savior that died for us, that came, the Lord of the Sabbath, what did he make him do to heal that hand? Reach out. Do you know the faith that that took? In front of a whole congregation, in front of a whole synagogue, Pharisees, scribes, here's this man with this withered hand, and Jesus is saying, come here front and center. Stretch out your hand. And as he stretches out that withered hand, it miraculously heals before their very eyes. <laughs> Could you imagine being there for that? Heals before their very eyes. And instead of, hallelujah, Lord Jesus, hallelujah, he is the Messiah sent from God. Is that what they said? No, but they were filled with fury and disgust with one another what they might do to Jesus. Mark says the Pharisees went out immediately and held counsel with the Herodians against him on how to destroy him. Matthew says, but the Pharisees went out and conspired against him how to destroy him, not, not just mad, not just wanting to have a sit down to understand what he thinks he's doing, all that's over. They withdraw from him and begin to conspire on how to destroy Jesus. You know, Matthew 13, it's really interesting. Um, Levi shows us in Matthew 13 and 12 was that this was the moment. I don't, I'm not sure Luke does that. I'll know more when I read, when I study more intimately the next few chapters. But in Matthew, for a fact, when this happens right here in Matthew, from that moment forward, Jesus changes his teaching paradigm. Up until this point, Jesus has spoken very plainly and very openly, but once he knows that they're out to destroy him, he changes his teaching tactic to a very specific form of teaching that he is very well known for. What would that be? Parables. Parables. And the whole point of the parable is that if you don't understand it, guess who ain't with you? Yeah. And that was evidence of God's judgment on the Jewish people. He stopped speaking plainly to them out of love, speaking plainly to them. He changed it to a parabolic method to, to, to anger them even more, to make them even more frustrated. Because now he speaks and they have to go, what, what does he mean by that? What is, he, what is Jesus talking about? What's he talking about? 
Let's finish with Hebrews chapter 4, verses 6 through 13. Go there for our closing passage. You know, for years I was, I was terrified to, um, to read passages out of Hebrews because, uh, anybody know why? Because I had a hard time finding it in the Bible. <laughs> no longer, thanks to you, amen? All right. Hebrews chapter 4. And the reason why I'm reading this to close is this is the Sabbath rest that, that the writer is talking about. Since therefore it remains for some to enter it, meaning Sabbath rest, meaning Jesus. And those who formerly received the good news failed to enter because of disobedience. This He would be talking to the Pharisees and the scribes. Again, he appoints a certain day. When? Today. Doesn't matter. Sabbath, weekday, doesn't matter. Today. Today, saying through David, so long afterwards in the words already quoted, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. For if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken of another day. Long later on, so then there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. Let us therefore strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. And then guess what comes in verse 12? For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. Is God something or what? Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for preserving this story in the scripture in the Gospels, where we can see the compassion that Jesus has to heal on the Sabbath, to take this poor man who had a, a withering hand, no telling the grief and difficulty that he had in his life because of his disability. But he took his withered hand and he took his withered heart and he healed them and made him whole again. And Lord, just like the timing of these placards we saw today with all of our brothers and sisters here and, and, and listing the sins that they, had been, that they had been saved from and redeemed from. Lord, you want to redeem us. You want to give us a life, a life of purpose. Not a life of comfort and ease, and that's so important for us to understand. There's no guarantee in Scripture for comfort and ease. In fact, all of our brothers and sisters in the early New Testament and the dawn of Christianity, most of them died martyrs' deaths. But Lord, you have promised that you would be with us and that we are sealed by your Holy Spirit for the day of redemption. And that we inherit the promises of old through our faith in your Son, Jesus Christ. We are forgiven our sins yesterday, today, and forever. We have freedom in you. Freedom to serve, freedom to love, freedom from worldly fear. We have grace, and we have it abundantly. And Father, if there is here anyone here today that does not know Jesus Christ, I pray, I pray, within your sovereign grace, in your time and in your way 
that you would bring that person to new birth in your gospel and your word. And we ask this in Jesus' name, amen. Would you stand for a brief time of response? Draw me close to you Never let me go Take